The Apostle Paul is frustrated with the Corinthians because some false teachers, so-called super apostles, have come in and they, they just, the, the Corinthians didn't use, seemingly, didn't use any discernment in listening to what they said. They just welcomed them. Oh, it sounds good to me. They welcomed them with open arms. And unfortunately, these false teachers were, uh, didn't think highly of the Apostle Paul. And so he's wanting to win them back so that they will be once again back under the truth, back under God's word instead of false teaching and misleading sentiments. Also, on top of the false teaching, the Apostle Paul is frustrated, you might say, because some of his Christian actions, some of his self-denial and self-sacrifice was misconstrued and it was looked at as an offensive thing instead of something that was loving and, and endearing and selfless. And that was because of cultural, different cultural understandings. And so he's been dealing with all of this. He's been speaking from the heart. He's been speaking sarcastically in some of his writings. And we're going to see more of the same this morning. The Apostle Paul is a selfless man. And I hope that that comes out. He is having to boast. We'll look a little bit at that this morning. But he does it in about the most humble way as you can. For Christianity, um, when the, the Christian way is less of man and more of God. And I think we see that in the Apostle Paul. As I reflect on this book and all that the Apostle has endured for Christ, and you'll recall that rather than boasting about his great ministry achievements, he actually shares all of what he lost, all that he's given up for Christ. The, the paradox in Christianity, I think, what God tries to pound into our heads is the opposite of what our nature tells us. And that is, God says, give. Give of yourself. And we say, no, I need to take in as much as I can. And it's pride. And so Scripture helps us to lose our grip on things that really aren't ours to begin with. It's a beautiful thing. I hope that that will take place this morning as we look at God's Word. The Apostle Paul finds his strength through his understanding of God, and we were encouraged this morning um, in Jessica's quote that how big is God? How big is your God? As I reflect on the Apostle Paul's life and often wonder, what, how could he keep going under such circumstances? I think one of the things is that it's not because he was like this abnormal, abnormally strong human being. As a matter of fact, he spends a lot of time boasting about his weaknesses. But where did he find his strength? Paul had a strong theology. Just no other way to look at it. His understanding of God and his clinging to the promises is what enabled him to put one foot in front of the other. It wasn't any kind of human power that he possessed. And so in light of that, as we think about our Christian lives, we have the same truths that we can cling to, same promises, the same God. As a matter of fact, if we think about the Corinthian church, they, we share the same nature as the people that the Apostle Paul is writing to. And we have the same enemies, the same challenges, and we serve the same awesome God. So this morning, rather than reading the entire text, I'm just going to take it in pieces, do something a little different. 
So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes to them and he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. So we have more of Paul's explanations here. You think your life is complicated. He's having to, not only are his actions misconstrued, sometimes his words or the way he says something is misconstrued, and, he, and he's being so gentle here. But this is just an awkward mess because deception is a powerful thing. And deception has come into the church and it's blurred, it's muddied the waters of God's pure truth that the Apostle Paul brought there in the gospel and, and, and the good news and the freedom of it. Deception is a powerful thing. And our flesh, unfortunately, is prone to it. Isn't it interesting that we could probably all look out of the same world, of the same window, see the exact same thing happen, and have a different interpretation of that? Some of us might get it wrong, and some of us might get it right. So in this case, what the Corinthians should have seen is they should have been commending Paul for his selfless acts. They should have been been congratulating him. They should have humbled themselves for how well he cared for them and how much he loved them. But instead, they took it, some of his selfless actions, as an insult. And we, I won't get into it again, but some of the cultural conflicts there is that in there, the Greco-Roman culture in that day and age, if you didn't ask for money and you called yourself a teacher then you weren't a good teacher. You weren't, listen, you weren't worth listening to because anybody worth listening to would charge something. Also, the fact that he did not take money from them offended them rather than served as a blessing to them because it was kind of like, oh, my money's not good enough. So it just, it, it's very awkward and it's very messy and the Apostle Paul is having to explain himself and he's having to boast. And we've been saying that it, it's awkward for him to do this and... Uh, Corky quoted a verse in, in 1 John 2, 14 and 15 this morning. And just to give us an idea of why Paul was feeling a little awkward about this. And Scripture says, do not love the world or anything in the world. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. So you can see the awkwardness here. Paul wanting to speak up, but then the tension between, but if I talk about what I am and what I've done, is that boasting? So I hope you you feel the tension because sometimes we may be put in that same position. And when you have to ask somebody's forgiveness for not burdening them, something is definitely wrong, right? He says, basically, please... Forgive me this wrong. What wrong? Well, that, you know, I worked day and night with my hands and raised my own funds, so I didn't have to burden you in any possible way. And he's having to ask their forgiveness for it because it was offensive to them. But we know that 
he wouldn't go back and do it any different because that's the Christian way. He's not saying I was wrong in how selfless I treated you. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, he's not going to change his ways. When he visits them again, he's not again going to be a burden to them because that's the selfless Christian way. So let's continue in verse 14. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So the Apostle Paul is trying to explain where he's coming from. There's a reason why I'm not charging you money. It's because I'm not interested in your money. I'm interested in your soul. John Chrysostom says, about Paul, I, I seek greater things, souls instead of goods, instead of gold, I seek your salvation. That's the motive behind why Paul behaved in such a way. And then, Paul does something clever. I want to say finally clever because he's been defending himself so much. But he turns the tables a little bit here and he uses an example that their culture would understand. They will get this. And this will sting. This will be one of those aha moments to them. And he's, he uses the metaphor of inheritance. Because in that culture, the Greco-Roman culture, it was the parents' responsibility, not just to birth, but to raise and to care for and provide for their children. And then even whatever, whatever uh, wealth they amassed throughout their lives, to gift it to them. That was understood. And so the Apostle Paul is borrowing something that they will understand this relationship in inheritance practices. And the children don't have to, you know, when they get a certain age, the parents don't say when you turn 12, you start work to pay this off. Because I've invested a lot of money in you. And by the way, I can't remember the statistics, but it is costly to raise children. And it's costly to educate children. That's why today you're hearing this stuff about uh, debt forgiveness or student loan forgiveness because so much money has been amassed in caring for young people and getting them ready to launch out into the world. So if money is not expected, what is expected in return? Love and honor. Respect. So in that culture, I'm not asking for you to pay me back. It's all yours. I'm glad to do it. The only thing I expect from you is love and honor in return. That's the principle. And so the Apostle Paul takes us and he turns and he says, look, you're my children. And we've already read several verses in chapter 6 and chapter 4 and then chapter 10 again. He's talking about you're my children. I was the first to bring you the gospel. I betrothed you. I was at the, the uh, officiated the ceremony when you came to Christ and, and became the bride of Christ. 
So the Apostle Paul sees himself as their parent. And he takes responsibility for their well-being in this case. And he's saying, in essence, I've treated you like a parent. I have been selfless. I have given you of my goods, of myself, my sweat, my mind. I've thought about you, my energies, my time. I've given you everything I have. And what do I get for it? Nothing but dishonor. There's something wrong with that picture. See, even in that culture, it was a sin to dishonor someone that has given of themselves in this way. And so he drives this home, if anybody is deserving of it, as your spiritual parent. In essence, you're calling me the failure. You're saying I don't love you. But who's the one that's failing in their duties? It's you, my children. Because you failed to love and honor me for my investment in you. Verse 19 as we continue. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your spiritual upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He just lays it right out there. These are his fears. I'm coming to you, and here's what I fear. I fear that I'm going to find you in sin. That these kind of sins, because of the false teaching and because you're being led away from God and the things of the Spirit, this is what I fear the Apostle Paul has, has been in communication with them. They didn't have cell phones in that day and age and it was a little slower. Information traveled a little slower, but it did flow. You'd be surprised how things got around the world. And he fears this because it will, will humble him. Now remember, he sees himself as a parent. And he feels like when he gets there, if he sees all this uh, bad behavior, it, it, it will humble him, it will shame him. Now, if you're a parent, you'll get that. Because sometimes the actions of your children are humbling and can bring shame. So if, if I'm up here preaching right now and somebody busts through the door there in the back, and says, uh, I'm sorry, Pastor Paul, to interrupt you, but such and such child is back there, and he's got one of the toys, and he's beating the other kids in, in the head with it, and he's throwing things up in the air, and he's disrespecting the worker back there. Now, if you're the parent of that child, what are you going to be doing? Probably sinking lower and lower in your seat. Oh, that child has a parent? I wonder who it is. It would bring great Shame and humility, and that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is saying because he has invested in these saints like children. 
He's taken time to tutor them, to mentor them, to teach them, to bring them through God's word. He's modeled Christian behavior for them. He's modeled a prayer life, no doubt, before them. And to come and find such a mess would be humbling. Now let me just make an, an observation I think that needs to be made. So if Paul sees himself as a spiritual parent and he takes some responsibility and we know that the, sin that souls die, the, the soul that sins dies and we're not completely responsible for other people's actions but we can have an influence on people's actions for better or for worse. And so he's feeling this responsibility here. And the observation I want to make is that in today's culture, when it comes to parenting and when it comes to children, it's like uh, nobody wants to take responsibility anymore. All we do is hear about what's wrong and there's no solutions. I literally just heard that phrase this week in this county. That all we hear about is what's wrong and no solutions. And I mentioned this in my part two Father's Day sermon. And when you look at the scriptures, when it talks about training, and it starts in the family, which influences the community and your state and your nation and the world, whose responsibility is it? Who does God hold accountable for the upbringing of children the fathers, primarily the parents, but the fathers. That's the solution. It's, it's the hard work. But we live in a, a blame-shifting culture, just like in the garden. And it's, it, it's hard work to be a parent. I know. It's hard. And things don't always turn out like you thought they would. And it doesn't always mean that you haven't put great effort into it. It's complicated. It's difficult. Uh, the, the, the sinful nature can really rear itself up. And we don't live in a perfect world, so it's not always going to turn out perfect, despite our efforts. But God has given us the solution to this. If only parents would feel what the Apostle Paul is feeling. Some responsibility and even grief. Grief enough to come to them again, not say, okay, I wash my hands. But he's saying, you know what, three times. And I'm, I fear that I'm going to find you as I don't want to see you. And by the way, you're going to find me as you don't want to see me. And we'll talk about this later. But what he's saying is, I've been very gentle. I've been so careful, so patient, so kind, so sacrificial. But if I come again and this is what I find, that's not the Paul you're going to see. Because I'm going to confront you flat out. And I'm going to wield some power, some spiritual power that you're not used to seeing. And there's two sides of it. It's, the, it's the, the justice and the mercy. God, we get both from God. Sometimes we get what we deserve and sometimes we get what we don't deserve. So the Apostle Paul is coming in that way. Personal responsibility over those that God has put under our charge. And then, of course, when they leave the house, by the, eight, by the age of 12, basically, we want to hope that we've instilled enough truth so that self-control takes over. And make, our chil- children are seeing it and making decisions on their own. And then when they move out of the house, we can continue as parents to be effective through prayer. Right? Letters in- of encouragement. Words of encouragement. 
Apostle Paul. I don't like, I fear I might not like what I see and you're not going to like what you see in me. What an appeal. You know, in God's providence, it could be said. The Apostle Paul could say, God sent me to you. I'm not God, I'm a human. I can only be in one place at one time. And for this season, and he was with them for, I believe, about a year and a half. In this season, I was with you specifically. I shared my life. I shared my heart. I shared God's word. I loved you. I gave you the, you, to you I gave the good news of faith in Christ alone. Salvation in Christ alone. I was God's voice for you. He sent me to you. Feel God's love through this. And yet rather than looking at life and looking at my visit in those terms, you look, began to see it as a bad thing. As if I was deceiving you. As if I'm out to get you and humiliate you. That's deception. You recal- deception made you recalculate your values and your priorities. So when he comes again, it won't be with that soft pillow. You know, as a parent, you, you, you want to shield your children from any harm. That's one of the things you do as a parent. You, you run around with that cushion, so to speak, that soft pillow. So if they fall over here, they'll, their fall will be cushioned. Or if they fall over here, their fall will be cushioned. It's a loving thing to do. But sometimes, if it's a matter of rebellion, we need to feel the pain and the consequences of our own actions. Sometimes, if there's a cushion there, it's not real life. Every time, it's not real life. Real life is, ow, I shouldn't have done that. I just found out that hurts. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. When I come the third time to you, you're going to feel the pain of your sin. You're not going to like that side of me. Now, let me make another observation here. The Apostle Paul lists specific behaviors that he fears he will see. We know these as sins. These are deeds of the flesh. We read about many of these this morning in the book of Galatians. He doesn't want to see them. He has labeled those as bad things. These are the kind of things that rather than building people up, they destroy people. Gossip and slander and immorality and sensuality, they they destroy people rather than... uh, in instilling them with life and flourishing and leading them to God. So he's calling specific things out. It's interesting as I read this that even this morning as I was reviewing that, that something as simple as this, not for us because we're a church culture, but in our culture at large, this is countercultural to call things out like this. You don't see that very often in our, in our day and age. But the Apostle Paul has a standard that he uses to judge these kind of behaviors. This is right and this is wrong. Who says? Well, the judge. God has spoken. God knows. He shared this with us. It's a gift because we're not going to get it right, especially in light of our sinful nature. It's going to be hit or miss, mostly miss. Paul's standard is God's word, the voice from heaven. The judge has spoken, so he calls it out. 
good behavior and bad. There's a clear distinction between the two. And how sad it is that in our culture, we no longer have this clear distinction about what's right and what's wrong because there's no standard to pull from to make those kind of judgments. I want to quote Thomas Sowell in his book, Dismantling America. You've got to hang with me because it's going somewhere, I think, very powerful here. So he says, people can get attention either by their accomplishments or by their deliberate attempts to get attention. So today, almost everywhere you look, people seem to be putting their efforts into just getting attention. Wild hairdos, huge tattoos, pierced body parts, outlandish clothing, weird statements, all of these have become substitutes for achievements. So he's saying you can get people's attention by your achievements, things that you actually accomplished. So like what is Michael Jordan known for? His accomplishments in basketball. What's Elon Musk known for? Well, his accomplishments in, in business. His innovation. So these people have the public's attention because they actually achieve something, whereas others have the spotlight just simply because they found a way to get people's attention and that's the only thing that they've actually achieved. He says the problem is not just with people who want to get attention by the way they dress or act or talk or show off in innumerable other ways, but the more fundamental problem is that the society around them pays its attention to such superficial and childish stuff. So now he's getting, we we were about to be offended because, wait a minute, tattoos and piercings, wait a minute, but that's not the root of what he's talking about. So now he's saying, wait a minute, why would a society even be so attractive, attracted to that kind of outlandish behavior, words, whatever somebody did for the purpose of getting attention? And he goes on to say, and this is a little bit, Before my time, I'm not real familiar, but he goes on to say about how the media lavished attention on Anna Nicole Smith and then Paris Hilton 24-7, and there was this infatuation. And apparently all what they did was just get people's attention. There weren't any actual achievements. While at the same time this was going on, Iran's movement toward nuclear capabilities is something that would literally change the world. So we have a society that's fixated on attention getters rather on things that are actually really significant happening in the world. So people that are attributing to society so that it might prosper go unheard of. So then he says, any bimbo who exposes her body can get more attention than a person who finds ways to reduce the cost of housing for millions and millions of people. Now, here's why I brought all this up. Thanks for hanging with me. In a non-judgmental world, what is there to determine who deserves notice except who can make a big splash? In short, the problem is not that particular people do particular things to get attention. The problem is that society at large no longer has standards 
by which to deny or rebuke attention getters who have nothing to contribute to society. Do not expect sound judgments in a society where being non-judgmental is an exalted value. We, we often take for granted what we have in God's Word. The judge has spoken. He, he has made decisions about behaviors and motives and attitudes of the heart. There is a standard by which we can judge. When, when you take that away, anything goes. And we're seeing that in our culture. So we, we need standards to call things what they really are. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul is threatened. He has fear of the direction that this little community is headed. Because this is destructive rather than building up. And so he calls on God's word as the standard. And for them to adhere to this standard that is higher than they are. God's word. We are in trouble if our only standard for how we should behave is ourselves. Our own judgment. We are in trouble for that. Philosophies, wrong philosophies, kill, maim, and destroy. There are people that literally die because they are following a bad philosophy of how life works. How they should think, how they should behave. Perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So he's concerned about this. That's all selfish stuff. It's all about the me. It's not selfless. And without that standard, all we do is slip farther, farther away. That's why it's a great privilege to be a part of a church that for 40 years now has proclaimed God's word as the standard, the final word on all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's where I find my strength. It's where, that's why we build on the rock, we grow on the rock, we trust in the rock because it is the pure standard of truth. And then lastly, Paul's other fear it's not just the sin, but the unrepented sin. Sin that has not been repented of. Sin that he's already aware of, perhaps during his last visit. In verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So it's not just the sin. It's the unrepentance. He fears it and it will grieve his heart. Because we already know how to sin, right? It just comes natural. We don't need lessons on how to sin. Now, there are people out there that could teach us how to sin better. They're a little more evil than we are and take us down that path. But as sinners, what do we need to learn to do and learn to do well? Because we sin well. And that is repent. And we are in great peril if we as believers do not know how to repent. We enter into the kingdom of God through 
repentance. It's an act of authenticity. It's an act of forcing ourselves to be honest with ourselves. Yes, I am a sinner. What I did was wrong. It was offensive to you. I deserve your wrath. Please forgive me. I see the truth. Thank you for offering a way out. Thank you for offering God forgiveness. So we think about this for a while. What is repentance? It's a change of heart. Yeah, I, I, I was looking at my sin in this light. It's very appealing. It was very enticing. It was very rewarding. But now I see that actually that, that leads to death and you lead to life. And what I really value now is righteousness. I really value being like you, Christ. So it's a change of heart. It's, it's a complete change of how you see things and how you see yourself and how you see your behaviors. So to walk in sin is to believe the lie that there's something wonderful and good about sin. But where do you find that in the Bible? Our flesh indulges in it. It doesn't mean there's not pleasures found in it. But what does it always lead to? The Bible's clear about sin. It leads to death. It's going to ruin something. It already has ruined something about us. And so it's a wrong belief. It's, it's a deceptive way of thinking that sin is good. And to repent means to change that. To see righteousness is way better than any pleasure that we could, we could gain through this sin. What else does scripture teach us about sin? Well, it promises us freedom. Oh, you've never felt so good if you would just indulge in this. But what does it deliver? Bondage. Every time. Again, it's a lie. It's an enticement. Sin enslaves us to that sin. It's like I remember my grandfather would, would say, oh, uh, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it dozens of times. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, that's how easy it is. I just keep doing it and then I quit. And that's how it is with sin. It leads to bondage, and there's a deception here. Now, in our twisted world, unfortunately, things have gotten to the point where if you say you have a standard, and you know right and wrong, and you're willing to love someone enough to share the boundaries of the universe that God put in place, guess what you have just become? Not a loving, caring person. You've just become public enemy number one. Isn't it so sad that the enemy and sin twists things so that the people that care about you the most, your best friends, your family, your parents, people who have given and, and sacrificed them and proven their love, that love you the most, now want to love you in this way, and you and they become your enemy. Because they want to put boundaries, they want to put lines, they want to put safeguards around you. It's another form of love. And because we love our sin so much, we reject it. And we see it as, you just want to put me in bondage. You want to limit my freedoms and therefore limit my pleasures. You want to keep me from having fun and experiencing the joys of the world. Isn't it interesting, interesting how that works? Well, the Apostle Paul is ready to 
calm and discipline them if that's what's necessary. But all he does not want to find an unrepentant people. Just in closing, thinking about repentance, that change of heart. There might be a false repentance, which is not grief over sin, but I'm sorry I got caught. There might be a partial repentance, which means uh, that I actually um, I feel bad about my sin, so I'm going to notch it down a little bit better. Not so much because of the sin itself, but because it makes me feel bad and I'll just feel better if I do this. Again, it's about myself. Or half repentance is when we actually change our behavior partially, but again, only because of what it does to us. So I'm not going to upset my wife anymore because she's useful to me. And so I'm going to change my behavior so she can continue to be useful to me. So I value you for only what you bring into my life or do for me. We have to, in order to truly repent, trace the, the belief back to the root. What am I believing in this situation? Why am I falling for this? What am I doing here? Trace it back to the view of what's true and what's not true. The Word of God, the standard. This morning we... Um, talked about, I think it was Bobby talked about Abraham and his faith in God. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded God had the power to do what he had promised in Romans 4. So Abraham's faith, he chose to go certain places to please God, and he chose to avoid certain places to not displease God that's life that's obedience that's walking in the spirit we know how to sin but do we know how to repent let this be the day or the section of scripture that just really pierces our hearts let this be the day where we make up our mind you know what I've heard this so many times today I'm going to act I'm going to obey the word of God The judge has spoken. May God bless the preaching of his word.